Legends once told of a podcast lost now in the sea of time. These ancient recordings spoke of games and the arcane art of HTML5. Today, Jeff Blair and Matt Hackett bring these words back to life. It is Lostcast, and may your ears receive it. Sponsored by Pokey. Welcome to Lostcast, episode 18. I'm Jeff Blair. I'm Matt Hackett. So Jeff, I think you've got something special for our listeners today. That's right. We actually have a coupon for an HTML5 game development course on uh, Udemy. Udemy? I don't know if I'm saying I, that correctly. What? what is that? It's like an online school where you can take video courses that you know walk you through certain aspects. And so uh, a fan or a listener named Pablo uh, has created a course, uh, and he generously gave us a bunch of coupon codes for this course to offer to our listeners. I uh, will be giving those away later in the show. Very cool, especially since I feel like uh, the large portion of our fan base is probably people who are at least interested in game development, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and so this seems like a really cool deal. I haven't actually taken the course myself, but it seems pretty legit. So when are you going to get those coupon codes away? Later in the episode, Matt. Well, I guess you'll have to keep listening to us. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll give those away. But first, uh, we actually had a listener email um, from a listener named David. Uh, and he was asking about some of our design choices in our our games. Um, specifically, he's wondering about DOM versus Canvas for rendering your game UI and menus and stuff. Should I do like a, a listener mailbag? <laughs> you should. Okay, and then later I'll add effects and it'll sound really rad. Awesome. You should do that. I will. So David asks um, some specific questions about DOM versus Canvas um, and about is it more work to re-implement you know, UI elements that the browser might give you for free? And, you know, does it make it more portable if you don't use the DOM and things like that? And so this is a topic that I'm actually pretty interested in because um, both of us actually have a lot of experience doing DOM games and Canvas games. So let me explain this really quick and uh, from kind of a high level. So when you're making an HTML5 game, you've got a couple of different choices with regards to how to actually render your game graphics. And traditionally, HTML is just HTML tags, which get rendered by whatever your your renderer is, and then you've got CSS, which takes care of the styling, right? Right. And we've got a lot of experience with HTML and CSS because we're web developers. You know, we've we both got long careers, like eight years each, at companies like Yahoo and Raptor, and that's you know how we made our living for almost a decade each. And uh, the lost decade, you might say. A, yeah, a lost decade. So actually, the first game engine that I wrote was called Diggy, and it was DOM based and CSS based and so I know firsthand the the pain like the, the parts that are easy and the parts that are hard when you're making a game with HTML and CSS so this particular question is more about like the difference between user interface stuff you know it's kind of asking about a hybrid approach it seems like and it actually it seems like a great idea I think because you render your game in canvas and then you do all of your UI in DOM and HTML and CSS and it kind of feels like you can get a lot of this stuff for free. Like you don't have to write checkboxes and you don't have to write buttons and you don't have to worry about laying out buttons on a modal and things like that. That's all well and good, I think. But um, we chose in our engine and our games um, to use a pure canvas-based approach. And I think that we did that for a couple of reasons. Um, the first uh, is, is probably portability. Of course, you're writing code for the browser when you're writing HTML5 games, but what you're really doing when you're writing just JavaScript is writing against the JavaScript VM. Right, like we don't really use much DOM. We just use the canvas tag, but that can be abstracted away um, with you know technologies like 
game closures uh, stack and and Lude's Cocoon JS and things like that. Yep. And so as long as you're running purely, you know, most of your code as pure JavaScript, um, it really opens up the door to using the JavaScript VM or V8 or whatever Spider Monkey somewhere else, some other device like uh, a phone or we tried to do it on Xbox, uh, not using V8 obviously, but right other engines. So there's that. I feel like it, it's very much more portable when you're talking about pure JavaScript. I think it's because when you're talking about HTML and CSS, you have to have all of this overhead attached to like having your renderer and, and stuff like that. Whereas if you look at the analogy of like Canvas is basically a dynamic image tag, you really only need to implement one tag, which which kind of focuses your implementation, right? It does, yeah. Whereas like if you've got an entire web renderer, you need to keep in mind, like you need to support divs and spans and images and inputs and headers and articles and footers and like however yeah. many hundreds of tags there are these days, especially in HTML5 where they've added a bunch of new ones. I mean, they, they deprecated some. And you don't just need the tags. You need all of the associated DOM code that doesn't live inside of the JavaScript VM to actually make that work. I mean, you need document.getElementById. You need get elements by tag name, by class name, perhaps. Right. Um, you need inner HTML support. Uh, there's a lot of things that you need that non-browser environments aren't going to give you. And I think that's why implementations like Cocoon.js by Lude can afford to be a little leaner and a little faster is because they only really have to worry about this one canvas element, which is kind of just like their viewport, right? And yeah. At that point, all they have to do is implement, I mean, not it's shouldn't it's not trivial by any stretch of the imagination sure. but all they have to do is is implement the canvas api as opposed to implementing all of dom and the canvas api maps a lot more closely to traditional game dev that's very true if you were trying to write a canvas to directx translator it's a lot easier than if you're trying to write the, a dom based yeah to directx or something so when we first started working together back in 2010 i i had a uh, diggy which was most of the way done and you had your own game engine which was you were calling it mu yeah, which um, wasn't as complete, but it definitely had some some clear advantages. But the thing that I found that was coolest is it it definitely reminded me the most of like our QBasic days, and then earlier days with like you know the Borland C plus plus compilers. It just it felt much more like traditional game development than than my game engine did by by leaps and bounds. I think a lot of that is because my first forays in the game development were QBasic. And then after that, DirectX or DirectDraw Seven. DirectDraw. Oh yeah, I remember DirectDraw. Yeah. DirectDraw is actually quite a bit um, like Canvas. Uh, and before that, Bitblit. So there used to be another API, a Windows API. I think it was like GDI or something. I forget exactly now, but um, it was basically an API where you could just copy image data from one buffer to another. Right. Which is exactly what Canvas does. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so for me, the Canvas stuff made me feel right at home. Yeah, I, I just like we had this. Uh, clear direction you know we wanted to get more into game dev and canvas felt more like game dev and i think the reason that we say it's more feature facing is because since it is like a simpler thing to implement to implement like it's a more focused implementation you've got more optimization routes that you can go yeah i think so too i mean at a certain point the only thing you're doing is pushing pixels around and so if you optimize the pixels being pushed then everything is fine as opposed to having all these weird cases where you know, you have to traverse a DOM hierarchy and looking for a, a, a node, or you have to reflow all these elements based on something, right? I, I think that it, it's a little simpler and it's a lot more portable. So I understand the appeal is, let's say you're sold on making your game in Canvas, right? 
you've got all your game logic drawing in canvas you're drawing your your tiles or your sprites or whatever in canvas and then it comes to the point where you want to open up a menu where you want the equivalent of like an unordered list and you want buttons where it would be much simpler if you could just you know attach an event to that button or that unordered list and you know you could parse the events that kind of a thing like the stuff that you're used to especially if you come from a web development background it might be you know you're like you yeah, this would play to my strengths and play to the strengths of the developer environment if i could just go ahead and use dom i, I understand that argument but to us we see a lot of advantages to using the exact same framework that you've built your game in in your user interface because when you're building your game you've got a lot of polished methods in place like like in, uh, in our upcoming game, Lunchbug, we've got a lot of methods on just general views and images and stuff that are called, you know, like bounce or emit where it shoots some particles out or uh, like the tweening library that we have. Uh, it's, it's for free. We, we get it for free on any of these, these elements, right? Right. So we can make the game feel kind of juicier and more polished just by using those same game elements where if we were going to re-implement the user interface in DOM... Yeah, we'd have some advantages like we could style stuff in a you know a certain way without requiring images. We could attach events more simply and that kind of stuff. But we wouldn't have all of these great like sugar methods attached to those those user interface elements. Or at the very least, you'd have to write them twice, and then that's two sets of animation code to maintain. And then you have to make a conscious decision when you want to animate something like does this need to be a canvas game object or is this going to need to be a DOM game object? And I think that gets tricky. Um, it's also kind of hard with layering, right? Like with our approach, we can layer UI underneath game elements, over game elements, like it doesn't matter. Oh, that's true. Whereas with a DOM approach, you basically have this div floating above your canvas in which they're completely separate. And so all of your UI needs to be above your canvas unless you do something like you have one canvas below and then a div layer for UI and then another canvas or something. But again, that gets complicated. And that can get really complicated because there can be several layers of user interface. So like in Lunchbug, there's a tutorial, which is treated like a modal. So it'll, it'll like fade out the screen below it. And you made this thing called a spotlight view, which basically will draw like a, a translucent overlay on top of the whole screen, mm-hmm. kind of darken it. And then it'll like drill a hole into it. It'll make this circle, which you can, um, you can tell it to tween to different like a, a different radius so it can like start pretty big and then like shrink down and focus on one element on the page. Right. And then um, a window will come down inside of that um, that modal. So it looks like user interface stuff, like maybe that could be DOM, but then sometimes we actually want to do stuff over that. Like while you're in the tutorial, you still have access to the menu. Right. So at that point, you kind of want everything to be in the same little realm, you know, like you want them all to be within Canvas where you've already got your sorting algorithms in place. Because if you had them all kind of floating above, there might be... I mean, you could have the same kind of stuff where you say that, you know, in the DOM, you say that this Z is above that Z. But if you got to the point where you wanted to have something between two different elements that were lived on the canvas, you might have to look at your implementation of canvas again to, like, use multiple canvases. Because you can't stick a DOM element between your canvas elements. Because right. they're all the canvas is just... It's one viewport. It's one element. It's obviously. one element. It's one image, yeah. You can't put other images between those. Right. It's also not that much more difficult to spin up your own basic input elements. We have a button and we have a checkbox. And we have a, a couple other elements that um, are, are similar to what we might use in, in a DOM menu. But they weren't very hard to implement. I mean, given the fact that our engine already supports input events on 
a given game object that's drawn to the canvas, yep. uh, which we want anyway, right? Because like there could be a power-up you have to click on or some other way that you have to interact with specific objects on the screen. So you almost have to do your game object collision code anyway, or input collision code anyway. And at that point, it's trivial to just say this rectangle is a button. And when this rectangle gets clicked, run some other code. Yeah, I mean, that does kind of depend on us or, or, or on you having a nice library that kind of sets up like input abstraction for you. And one thing that I think is is really valuable is uh, like a, a parent-child relationship. And that's one reason that Dom is still pretty attractive. So like actually, whenever we we quit game closure and we took the full-time plunge to work on Lost Decade, the engine that I had had, it didn't have a very good parent-child relationship going on right so like in dom you can create a div that's like you know as wide as you want as tall as you want and then you can relatively position stuff inside of it and that's really handy or you can absolutely position things inside of it you can say like i want this element to be in the bottom right of its container right Mm -hmm. and the engine that i was working with didn't support that and that sucks you know and and dom you get that for free so that's a pretty attractive feature but then so you had came in and, and you introduced the whole parent-child relationship and it made the library like just worlds better i really like the concept of like the game object hierarchy you know where you think about it as if you had a div with a button in it in our case it's just we have one game object that has another game object inside of it and the relative positioning still works and all that other stuff and yeah we had to do a bunch of groundwork to make this engine do the things we wanted to right um but i think in the end it's a much more concise and flexible and portable approach i gotta agree so another argument that I can think of is when you have, say, a static screen, right? So one common use case for me is like, let's say I'm working on a new feature or I'm fixing some bugs in Lunchbug. And what I'll do is I'll like hit the pause button and I'll go back to Vim and I'll start writing some code. And I notice that my computer is just flipping out. You know, the fans kick on and it's um, it's kicked into high gear, you know? Yeah. So I go back and I look at the screen and nothing's changed. All, all of the game elements are paused. The particles aren't moving. The creatures aren't doing their idle animations. But it is getting redrawn every single frame. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of uh, how it works in Canvas. You know, like every every animation frame, you want to be redrawing everything basically from the ground up. And in DOM world, the browser takes care of that heavy lifting for you. So like if you say I've got these, you know, these elements on the page and they live here and there, the browser is not going to sit there and try really hard to redraw. It's smart enough to know when something's dirty and needs to be redrawn. Yep. So that's pretty attractive. Um, and you can do that in Canvas, um, but you have to write it yourself. I think that's kind of the big takeaway here is that DOM will give you some stuff for free, but it comes with a lot of overhead in terms of complexity, and it's not very homogenous. Right. So you know you have to make the decision of whether or not that's the right the right choice for your specific project, I think. Yeah, that's true. There is uh, a method, I think it's generally called dirty rects, dirty rectangles. Mm-hmm. Or redraw rectangles. Redraw rectangles. So like the, the general gist of it is that when a portion of your canvas is dirty, meaning that it is no longer, like it doesn't look the way it needs to anymore, mm-hmm. then you redraw it. And we've experimented with some of that stuff, like especially when we were working with Game Closure. The, our current game library, uh, our game engine called Gin, it doesn't actually support dirty rectangles no it doesn't um i I feel like dirty rectangles actually adds a lot of complexity to the code oh yeah um that i haven't personally wanted to dig in and and flesh out quite yet um and honestly with some pretty uh, paying attention to what things you're redrawing and making sure that 
you're not you know clearing the frame every uh sorry clearing the background every frame and then drawing like a fully opaque background on top of it uh if you're just kind of aware of your performance considerations then i think that with today's modern hardware uh canvas games can run pretty well yeah, I feel like in most scenarios our games perform reasonably well. Even Lunchbug, so the the native resolution is uh, iPad resolution. It's ten twenty four by seven sixty eight in landscape mode, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of pixels, especially for like a maybe like an iPhone three where the resolution is forty by three twenty. So we scale it down, and that's a lot of pixels to be scaling and drawing for a phone like that. But it still it gets like pretty reasonable performance, like twenty thirty frames per second. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the implementing something like dirty rectangles would take so much time and the performance gain would be nice but i feel like you can spend much less time and get higher performance gains in other areas you know yeah i mean that's possible we've actually done a lot of uh performance tuning on our engine so it's pretty pretty good so far i mean clearly drawing is the bulk of the time spent in every frame and on top of that text drawing is probably the most yeah it's really surprising especially like on ipad yeah. We've noticed that when you do like a fill text on iPad. Stroke text. Yeah, like the, the, the fill text is fine. Then, then right. when you start to stroke it, it's it's a, it's it's got way worse performance. Like like hey. notice like the frame rate takes a, a like an order of magnitude hit. This is a PG cast, Matt. This is a PG cast, yes. I've said no words that need to be bleeped out. <laughs> I'm talking about Canvas API, Jeff. What are you talking about? Nothing. <laughs> Canvas API. <laughs> Yeah. So so we, we took those calls out on iPad. I think we've got some, it's not ideal. We've got some hack in there where it's like if his iPad or if his touch or something, then don't, just don't draw stroke text right. on those particular screens or whatever. But we want to experiment with buffered text stroking. Yeah. And I feel like the, the buffered, buffering your text views is kind of in the same ballpark as, as dirty rectangles. It has some of the same problems. So what we're talking about here is like, let's say we have in our game engine, we create a text, what we call a text view which is basically like a game view, only instead of drawing an image or a background color, it'll be drawing text. So it uses fill text uh, or it uses um, stroke text or whatever you tell it to, right? Yep. And we'll say that's like, okay, this is 320 pixels by 120 pixels and the text is, you know, hit points equals five or something. And it'll, every single uh, tick, every single redraw frame, it'll be drawing like the fill text, whatever you tell and it to. And the stroke text and the shadow and whatever else. Yeah. yeah and it's way faster uh, and it can be much more easily hardware accelerated if it's just blitting pixels already knows about to the screen, you know, or, or just an image, like, like a sprite, you know, that, that's way simpler. So we were, we've been experimenting with these implementations where a text view will tell it to like buffer itself or like you know we don't want you to change so like an example in lunchbug there's a, a store where you can buy different pieces that you want and there's this big image in the background um that contain it's like a wooden box that contains the items and at the, up at the top there's this um metal panel and we're internationalizing our game it'll be localized so we wanted to make sure that that's the actual text and not part of the graphic it actually says store right mm-hmm. uh, and the problem is it's redrawing the graphic and every single frame it'll redraw the fill text and the stroke text and it performs terribly on iPad, right? So we were experimenting with telling that text view to buffer itself so it'll just be drawing an image instead. But it's got these problems where like what if first of all, which properties change that needs to set like the buffer to be redrawn, like flagging it dirty, mm-hmm. right? And then like how big is the text? Do you have to do stuff like um what is that in Canvas where you can like it's measure really, text. Measure text. It's kinda of, like awkward. It only gives you the width, doesn't give you the height. 
and then some things happen like if you like the stroking can sometimes go outside of the bounds that you would expect right and so you kind of face a situation where you have to allocate a bigger canvas than you actually need i mean one approach would be to have a huge canvas uh as your buffer and then you just draw your text to the middle of it Hmm. Um, but then you still have to you know kind of crop it when you blit it to the screen or else you're like blitting more pixels than you really need to so that also has weird performance implications uh, and memory usage. Yeah, it's it's cert- like it sounds easy off the cuff, right? You're like, uh, so I just want this to cache itself, basically. It's like uh, so I change the text, I just take all that, put that to a separate canvas, and then save that as a local image, and then draw the image instead of the text. Right? It sounds right. easy enough, but there's all these edge cases which just make it non-trivial. Definitely. I guess that's kind of a tangent about text views. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. I-, I think the upshot is that a pure canvas-based approach is more flexible. Uh, in a lot of ways, even though uh, it's also more work at the beginning. I feel like our engine is kind of in a place where we get this stuff for free now, where to us, it's like, oh, we're going to implement a modal. Like, there's no choice. It's do it in Canvas because our engine already has buttons and checkboxes and, you know, it knows how to render and, and reflow and things like that. I feel like we have a lot of experience in this area. We, we've actually, so we were working on a game Back in our game closure days, there was a game, it was all using their SDK, um, which was primarily Canvas-based, and then you were kind of doing a brand new version, which was um, DOM-based, yep. because uh, you could get the 3D transforms going on in CSS, and then you could get the hardware acceleration on iPhone 3 or something. We've talked about this before, mm-hmm. but essentially, so I, I've got Diggy, I made a whole game engine in DOM and CSS, and then we went back, and now we've got a whole game engine in canvas so i've got experience across the board there and then you yourself like you you had made shapes in dom and css uh we had that canvas game and you went back and you re-implemented it in dom so it's like we we've got a pretty full featured (laughs) we've got a lot of experience in this area and i think our our general advice is just stick with canvas it is if you're willing to get into the nitty-gritty of like low-level canvas manipulation and kind of rolling your own event structure and figuring out where on the screen, which object on the screen intersects uh, a user's input. Right. So if you're willing to get into those realms, Canvas is more flexible and gives you a lot more power, but... Um, and it's more future-facing. And it's more future-facing. More future right. <laughs> future, feature, feature, facing. Feature, feature, feature. Long story short, you know, we're obviously big Canvas advocates. Having done both, we really feel like it's the way to go. Um, there are instances where it's slower than DOM in circumstances uh, on mobile phones and stuff but yep. that's only gonna get better in my opinion and i mean like if you have to support internet explorer 8 for some reason right then you get into the realm where you might want to you know support it <laughs> we're we're in a nice place in that we can support whatever the hell we want basically that's true i guess one other thing to talk about in this subject would be so so some game engines you code your game and then they will take care of whether it's rendered in canvas or dom Right. And so um, that was actually something I was thinking about trying for our engine. But um, the more I kind of got into it, you know, the more I felt that having just one homogenous code base or one homogenous rendering pipeline was better. I just feel like that's looking backwards, you know? Yeah. The, 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 the areas where DOM and CSS, the areas where those need support are kind of items of the past. You know, like Internet Explorer 8 
and then iPhone 3, it's like when you look at the the new stuff coming out where all the excitement about mobile gaming is, it's it supports Canvas, you know, and right. sometimes even WebGL. And most of these newer Android phones and the newer iOS devices, uh, they run great. Lunchbug runs fantastically, aside from the text stroking issue that we were talking about a minute ago. Yeah. Lunchbug runs fantastically on the iPad. Yep. And that's pure ca- Canvas at 1024 by 768 pixels. I- I've seen it get like 40 frames per second on my iPad 1. Yeah, iPad 1. I'm really satisfied so with that. So imagine people that have the iPad 3. It's just going to be... My, my <sighs> assumption is that it's amazing. There is a 3, isn't there? Yes. Uh, I wish we Sorry, had... <laughs> it's the new iPad. It's not 3. What? Right, isn't that right? What are you, well, is that their Apple's new thing, their marketing thing? Well, it's kind of like they want to make it like a brand. You know, there's like the MacBook Air, and it's just, this is this year's MacBook Air. And so they're moving the iPad in that direction too. Like this is this year's iPad. Oh, weird. As opposed to like iPad one, two, or three. Huh. Uh, that's what I think, but I could be wrong. This from the the people who have like mountain snow leopard cat coming out <laughs> soon. I can never keep track of what what is what. Mountain lion, Matt. Mountain lion. You are a terrible OSX fanboy. Oi. <laughs> um, we could probably talk about that Dom stuff forever. I mean, we both really love getting into the nitty gritty of that stuff. But uh, again, the upshot is we think Canvas is the future facing way to go we might be biased i don't know how i mean we're not and we're biased in the fact that we've worked with both and we like one rather than the other very Can- clearly canvas pays us canvas. <laughs> <laughs> the people who wrote the spec didn't apple write the spec huh didn't apple write the canvas spec maybe they slipped us some money somehow or something i don't yeah, know yeah that's why we're biased yes <laughs> no we just have an irrational hatred of dom Maybe that's it, yeah. We I, spent so much of our careers in <laughs> Dom and, and World that we're just done with it. Pretty much, yeah. I really loathe working with Dom these days. It makes me really angry. <laughs> Sponsored by Pokey. Really, Matt? Tell us more. Yes, we have a sponsor now. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's great. Um, so we talked about Pokey a little bit on our previous podcast, obviously. Um, yep. They're a great company. Um, and so we're very happy to you know, help them help us promote them and us. <laughs> that's the that should be our tagline so so you may remember hearing about pokey uh because we won third place in a contest they held oh gdc yes yeah so march 2011 yes no 2012, 2012 yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so march of this year we went to gdc where it was announced that we won third place in a contest pokey was having and we started talking to them. I mean, just as part of the event, we had lunch and dinner with them. And uh, we're both working on like stuff that is a lot of overlap and there's a lot of um, similar interests going on. And we just had a good relationship with them and started talking about it. And this kind of relationship made a lot of sense. And we think their product is super cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, we even just implemented uh, their new API, uh, Leaderboards API, most recently on, on Onslaught Arena. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Corey, I believe it was from Pokey, uh, launched this new feature on Pokey. That's P-O-K-K-I dot com. Mm-hmm. And you can play Onslaught Arena there. And yes, you can play Onslaught Arena in other places. But if you play it on Pokey, there is a high score API, which people who've been following us for a long, long time, like since 2010, may remember that Onslaught Arena actually launched with a high score leaderboard when it launched on the Chrome Web Store in two, December 2010. That was the grossest ball of Python that. That was me <laughs> learning and implementing Python and <laughs> App Engine at the same time. Right. I'm surprised it lasted five minutes. It actually lasted like a month before something broke. And, I, and like, I just saw that as an excuse to just take it down. Yeah. So I am thrilled to have, like, it was really easy to integrate Pokey's high score API. Yeah. So um, go play and try to beat high scores and. 
We've been staying away because we think that we could beat your high score. We you, probably can. You people who are going to play Onslaught. You people, huh? You people. My, my high score, I, I get like 60,000 or something, 50,000. Huh. And I mean, like, if you don't have any context, that score doesn't mean anything to you. But that's no. that's hard. That's like beating the whole game. And that game is really hard. I've actually gone back and played it a few times since. And uh, without practice, I can't just play through the game and beat the Green Dragon and keep going. The Green Dragon always kills always. me. Always. Me too, yeah, He yeah. is insane. I breeze through the first, you know, 30 waves or whatever. Yeah. And then at wave 30, the green dragon is just this brick wall of a boss. He is way too hard. <laughs> yes, he what is. is wrong with us? I don't know. I blame you. You did the AI programming. <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> I even remember while I was developing that boss, I was like, this is terrible. Yeah. Well, I didn't think it was terrible. It was just really hard. I think I was kind of, I had blinders on because... I, I was developing it and playing it a lot during yeah. the development, and so I was good at it. Yeah. And I knew, you know, I, I'd say, like, okay, he's going to do this for exactly 500 milliseconds. Right. Because I'd just written that line of code. Yeah. And then so, you know, I could I could adapt it very easily. <laughs> That's cheating. That is cheating. I guess if, if a reader is really, or a listener is really diligent, they can go in and look at the code and figure out the AI. Pro- Actually, it's open source now, so yes. you don't even have to be all that diligent. <laughs> <laughs> good luck deciphering my janky code. There you go. So uh, do check out Pokey, and especially check out Onslaught Arena, and I would love to see some more high scores coming in. I'd love to see people really, uh, you know, trying to get the top spot, and then I, w- I want to see people on there better than us. I would love a challenger. Like, yeah. I remember uh, there there are some Google employees who are better than us. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if uh, if they've played the game recently or on Pokey. We should, uh, I think Dan, remember Dan? Yeah, I forget his last name. He was amazing. He was amazing. He was better than us. So I oh, feel yeah. we should get him over there. Yeah, we should see about that. But I would love for some of our listeners to go give it a shot. And uh, I want some high scores to compete with. Yeah, that sounds great. So the way Pokey works is if you've got an HTML5 game, or uh, I think they also support Flash. I think it's pretty much just anything that'll run in WebKit. It's uh, it's super simple. Right now it is Windows only, yep. which is a contention point for us as Mac guys. But Mac is on the horizon. Yeah, so they are very aware of that, and they are working on a Mac version, so that is very good news. The other thing to keep in mind is that Pokey is a product, not a company. Um, the company is actually called Sweet Labs. True, true. And Sweet Labs actually makes uh, several products. Um, Pokey is one, and another one called Open Candy. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're a very developer-focused company, and so even if Pokey isn't your cup of tea, um, they're they're doing cool things in the space, and they're likely to launch. And to they've most got people. they've got a bunch of awesome people there. Everyone's like really energetic, and they're all really good at what they do. And they're all really interested in helping developers. They're just an awesome company. Yep. So I was talking to my brother, Sean, recently. Yeah. Um, and he's an aspiring writer. Oh, really? You know, he's, he's having trouble kind of breaking into the market. And I think that's something that's common to a lot of people in creative professions. Yeah, I would imagine it's really hard for authors. And it's probably same ballpark for game developers. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, anybody who's in that realm of creating something that other people consume. I mean, videos, music, it's like writing. So many people want to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you need to differentiate yourself. Anyways, uh, the point is, is that, you know, he's kind of struggling. And I felt that I was in a good position to give him some advice about you know how to break into the market even though i personally don't have any experience in writing i think that the stuff that we've done and the decisions we've made with our our gaming careers is transferable to other creative professions oh it definitely can be yeah so one thing i kept encouraging him to do was to just put his work out there put it on amazon you know put it on his own personal blog Um, i think that one of the things that amazes me um, about the last couple years is that we'd both been toiling away on these little game demos that were pretty cool Yep. And, you know, we showed them to our friends, and I think you had Spacius on Ajaxian or whatever, but yep. um, by and large, we really weren't 
promoting ourselves very much um, with regards to these creative endeavors. And so I feel like it's really easy to kind of spend a lot of time making this really cool stuff and then you just don't know how to kind of give it to the world almost. Our own uh, Joe Huckabee, who we interviewed a few episodes ago, has probably had that same problem. Like he was a, he was a guy who pioneered a lot of this new tech, you know, like a lot of uh, like the audio sprites and like he got in the ground floor before Canvas even existed, you know, and he, and yep. he just didn't blog about it. So there's the unfortunate thing going on where like a lot of other people are credited for a lot of the technology that he actually was probably doing first. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of it's just kind of like getting the word out there and like just trying to get people's attention. Um, but it really kind of hits home for me in that when we launched Onslaught Arena back in 2010, uh, that was the single best resume I've ever created. Yeah, we basically. actually we didn't even have to interview at Game Closer. They were, they just saw Onslaught Arena, contacted us, and were like, "Well, what's like we want to hire you? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this." <laughs> Pretty much, um, and we've gotten many many other offers between before then and and after then. And I think it's largely based on the strength of of Onslaught. But I think we both would agree that Onslaught's not a particularly strong game. Hey, what are you saying? <laughs> it's no Angry Birds. <laughs> That's true. It's very true. We like it, and a lot of other people like it, but it's not what many would consider to be a mainstream success. Right. No, no, no. But it has opened a lot of doors for us. And I think that's the reason that, you know, you probably hear us talk about Onslaught Arena a lot. Um, and it's because it's really taken us and op- op- opened a lot of doors for us that we wouldn't have had otherwise. It absolutely has, yeah. And I think it's the difference between actually putting something out there and wrapping a nice package, like a bow. Like we, we say this a lot, like wrap a bow on it, right? Yep. And that's really critically important. I've seen, like we hang out in uh, the BBG channel, uh, hash bbg on, on the free node a lot and like everybody and their mom has a game demo you know but it's it seems to be a lot more rare that someone will wrap a bow on it and put it in this nice package and like even just monetizing it like it is okay to ask for money for your creation you right. know it is and another thing i think is that we kept it small um and so when i was talking to my brother my advice to him was make short stories and put them on amazon oh, yeah. for free or put them on your blog. Basically, put them out there for free. Make a bunch of stuff. I really can't emphasize that enough. Is to put stuff out there and make a lot of it, and yeah, something will stick. So I, I think you were saying too, like he's he considers himself a writer, but he's never actually published anything, right? Right. And I think that like if we were talking about this 20, 30 years ago, we'd be having a way different conversation. Where it's like, I would be okay with people saying that they're like maybe they're a writer, or maybe they want to be a writer, but they're not published because getting published is really hard. You have to, you almost have to have an a connection at a publishing company and then you have to go through all this stuff because we're talking about a major upfront investment to like print on paper and same thing was going on with video games where it's like you know you needed to get a company to put behind the capital to like print your game to disc or like actually produce the cartridges if you're talking about like a Nintendo game or something right right um, but these days when you've got there's so many avenues for game developers like there's nothing stopping you from releasing on Google Play on uh, any of the Apple's like uh, app stores and iPhone iPad all that good stuff right Chrome you, Web Store is yeah. easy so Sean is a writer like he wants to write like a novel kind of thing right right so he's got Kindle he can self publish on like I mean I don't have personal experience with this but that's my understanding and if nothing else, the open web, I've seen some authors uh, who've got some success from like, they're, instead of a blog, they have a book, right. but it's just in blog format. Or you could have downloadable PDFs and oh, yeah. things like that. I mean, I mean, there's lots of ways to distribute your content. And obviously, game distribution is the hardest part for both writers and game developers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there are stores out there that can help you. And I feel like with Onslaught Arena, like not a ton of people played the game. Probably. It's probably maybe up to 100,000 at this point. Yeah, I have really no idea. Yeah. We probably should know that. We're, we're terrible at metrics. Yeah. 
but j just the small amount of people that encountered our work we've had a lot of opportunities because of that and so yeah you know don't think that just because you're publishing on a small scale that you won't have opportunities arise from people seeing your work and wanting to collaborate or knowing someone that can put you in a good position you know it's all about networking yeah and, and just having a product that you've put out there in a meaningful way gives you the ability to take advantage of opportunities when they arise you know like it basically throws out a net so that you can collect luck if it like, like you know because right. like if we didn't have a game when pokey was having this contest we certainly wouldn't have won third place no but we had a game and it was really easy process to wrap it up in pokey and put it up there you know and that has made a ton of difference because that was right around the same time that we were doing the independent thing so that like that really gave us that extra boost we needed to hit the ground running you know who's done a really good job of just putting stuff out there and, and and getting his name out there and who I'm personally really proud of. Your mom? I, I've been actually been <laughs> using the word he. I've been using... The <laughs> That's why it's funny. <laughs> uh, he would actually appreciate that, that joke. Joshua Morse. We talk about him all the time in this podcast. We do, yes. Uh, he, does, he does all of our music and sound effects. He's an amazing uh, composer and audio engineer. And man, if you go look him up, he's got tons of YouTube videos. He's got video game... Uh, arrangements he's got original compositions he's done multiple albums i did the artwork for his last two waveform albums which are great they're these like um fm synthesis albums hmm. and those have been really good for him i think because uh, in, in last month's game developer magazine he actually got a mention it wasn't just his name it was like um uh, there was an interview with the guy who runs ubiktune.org that's mm -hmm. u-b-i-k-tune.org link in the show notes I will put a link in the show notes. Um, so yeah, Joshua had a song on uh, Soundshock, which is an FM funk album, and uh, he was called Master of Funk, Joshua Morse. You know, nice. like he's <laughs> getting his name out there. And if if you go look up information about him, he's he's got so much stuff, and he enables you to give him money if you want to. If you like listen to his music and you want to buy his albums, he's got a lot of stuff that's up for like pay what you want or like you know something really reasonable, like three bucks for an album. Right. You know. And I think it's just like the fact that he's like, you can go listen to his music. You can give him money for it. You can see what he's done. You can you can commission work from him, you know? And it really presents an outwardly professional appearance too. I mean, if, you know, a lot of recruiters scour the internet or not just recruiters, but, you know, people that are in a place to hire you yep. in one form or another. Yeah. Um, and that kind of puts you head and shoulders above the crowd. Yes. Uh, I know that we did a lot of interviewing at Raptor and at Yahoo. Uh, and anybody that came across... You know our desks that had a product that they had made and launched yep um was clearly someone we were more interested in than someone who hadn't yeah exactly um it just shows a level of dedication and ambition that a lot of candidates aren't going to have but anyways uh upshot of that conversation is that put your stuff out there yes um, because it will open lots and lots of doors for you so that's the advice you'd give to your brother sean you'd say just make a short story put it in kindle that is your very first step it is, and then keep doing it. Like, don't just make one short story. Make a bunch of story, short stories and put them all out there and, like, have a very prominent web presence. I mean, just make sure you have a domain, you know, whatever your name is .com or whatever your company name is .com and yep. make that information easy to find. Make it prominent. Link to it all over the place from all of your other online profiles. Yeah. I mean, it's not a surefire method for success, but it gives you a much better chance to, you know, happen upon one of these opportunities or have an opportunity come to you than so you otherwise would. So that's key, too. Yeah, like... We haven't reached like uh, we, we've reached some levels of success. You know, we've been sustainable for going on five months now as independence. We started our company in 2010. You know, so we've had time to grow, 
And even now, we're we're not at any level where it's like, yeah, we're we're good, we're completely self sustained or anything. Yeah, you know, no, we're, we're still in the process of growing. So it's like putting your first thing out there is just the first step. It's it's completely necessary, but it's not going to be what you know makes or breaks you necessarily. Right, and we've set ourselves up to hopefully succeed. Right, like yeah. we've at least given ourselves the opportunity to try and make our company work. Yeah, and whether or not it works or it fails. Um, both of us are going to be in a great position marketability wise. I think we've talked about this a lot. You know, we always talk about the state of our business and like mm-hmm. where we're going to be in a few months and what's going to happen if like we can't, you know, pay the bills or whatever. And, yeah. um, it always comes down to, well, the worst case scenario is we go back and get, you know, nine to five web dev jobs, but we're so much more experienced having started our own company and doing all the things that entails yep. that we're very, very, it puts us in a better spot. It does. It makes us more marketable and we have skills that, you know, other people aren't going to have. And that kind of puts us above the rank and file in terms of hiring opportunities. Yeah. And for Sean, it's like if he can never actually get the, you know, if he doesn't make the book that sells a ton of copies and can, you know, that he can make that his job, he can at least maybe use his portfolio right. to get him like an editor position. And exactly. maybe that'll get him like once he's, once he's got an in at the company, it's much easier to have someone's ear and talk about publishing your book. There's a big difference between I want to be a writer and here's a bunch of short stories I've written. I think we, we both know a lot of people um, in our circles that kind of want to be doing this kind of stuff, but you know, just don't ever sit down and take the time, even if it's, you know, an hour a day to just kind of create a product. I think mostly it's a question of focus. Definitely. Can you stop working on whatever it is that does not put you closer to your goal? Exactly. Yeah. And that's hard. I know yes. how that is. Like even to this day, I, I will think about like, oh, you know, it'd be cool as a website where X, Y, Z. And like, I'll, I'll start to mentally spend cycles on it. And like, I, I'm just barely able to stop my fingers from going to the keyboard and begin working on it, you know? Right. But that's the, that's the difference is, is being able to focus or not. And that's really hard. And that's an almost obvious case where you're like, I shouldn't be working on this, right? Like the minute you think, oh, I'm going to make Facebook for bicycle enthusiasts or something or whatever your interest That's a billion dollar idea. <laughs> Even that obvious uh, of a comparison, um, you know, it, it's hard to resist. But then you have these other ones. Like I was thinking about this the other night. I was spending a lot of time in the last few days, you know, rejiggering um, some of our low-level engine sorting and things like that. And yeah, some of them are bugs that need to be fixed. But I would find myself like really wanting to clean up this code base and change things in, in different ways. And I always have to ask myself, like, how does this move our business forward? Like, are, are people that are paying us for games going to pay us any more because of this new work that I did? Hmm, that's a good question. Probably so, not. Probably not. I mean, we're talking about low-level technical details. You know, people don't really care. You know, if you're if you've got the greatest entity component architecture in the world but your game sucks, yep. no one's going to care. And so that's that's almost time wasted if you're just kind of spinning your wheels on this architecture level stuff. Um, the hard part is, is that I feel like we did spend a lot of time on the architecture of our engine and that's helped us do things really easily like menu, button, checkbox code like we were talking about earlier. We do a lot of auditing of our time and that's one question we've continually asked ourselves is like, should we be making our own engine? I mean, we are way past that line now. Like, oh, yeah. we've got it, and it's it's so deeply embedded into all of our games. Like, we're we're completely committed to it. But like, even back then, there there wasn't one game engine that did all the stuff that we needed. So it would have required a significant amount of work, regardless. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a different scenario. Like, if you're building a you know a AAA game, especially, there's so many choices for you that that do everything. You know, there's like Source Engine, and there and there's UDK, and 
there, there's Gamebryo and there's Unity and there's all this stuff and, and all of it's full full fully fledged, full featured and all this stuff and like different scenario in, in HTML5, you know, and that's one of the sure. reasons we've made that hard choice to go with our own engine. Well, and when you're talking about a 2D engine, you're talking about a problem set that's pretty easily tackleable. Yeah, it's not scary scope. Right. I mean, we went, basically went from no engine to pretty decent engine within three or four months. That The very first version of the engine was like a week of work. Right. And I mean, yeah, I didn't have a lot of nice features like we were talking about earlier, the uh, the view hierarchy with like parent-child relationships and stuff. That's right, really right. necessary. The input abstraction was terrible, but, you know, a, a nice st- uh, stepping stone, you know? But it's this piece of code that we kind of continually update and keep, it keeps growing with our games. You know, when we encounter something we want to do in our game, we kind of hack it up within the game and then we audit it and then fold it back into the engine. Yeah. So that's kind of our, our general, I guess, advice is, is like if, if you're a creative person is just, just begin to put your work out there, right? Right. And I think it holds true for writers or game developers or, you know, painters or, or whatever it is that you want to do. But then like bringing it back into HTML5 world, I think especially right now, there's all this excitement around HTML5. And that's one of the reasons that like we, we're aware that it's a buzzword, but we have really lashed onto it like as tightly as we can, not yep. just because uh, we love it. Like we, we really do. It's like we've been wanting to make games in, in JavaScript for as long as, as we've known JavaScript basically, right? Pretty as long much. as we've been web developers, we've been making these crappy little games. And then like, you know, you, you had Shapes and I had Spacius and like back before HTML5 was even a term that anyone had coined, we were making JavaScript games. But then when it became a term, that's when we were like, Oh wow! There's all this buzz around this thing that we want to do. Well, yes, let's let's own that. Let's 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 tackle that all that we can. You know, right, right. And I think that going with where an industry, especially one as giant uh, as like the technology industry, you know, it's like going with where the excitement is can really pay off. Like that's opened a ton of doors for us. Is like if Onslaught Arena was written in you know C plus plus or if it was a Windows game or something we would not have had nearly as many people get excited about it. Like we've talked before about how if it was a flash game, which is probably the closest relative to HTML5, mm-hmm. it's it's not even a very high-end flash game. It would probably <laughs> be around the mid-range. So yeah, right. it's a fine flash game, right? But because it's HTML5 and it's this technology that so many people and companies are excited about and there's so much new money going into it, that has really helped it kind of elevate above the rest, honestly find a niche basically yeah i feel like starting within a niche uh is great because then you kind of build your fan base uh among people that are also interested in that space as well right and that kind of gives you like your foothold yeah um and you can really be focused i mean it's all about focus right yeah we we didn't set out to be an independent game studio making games for steam or whatever else i mean that's something we've talked about we want to do but when we made onslaught it was like let's make an html5 game yeah, a lot of it was like playing to our strengths. Like we would have to go and learn action script, you know, like relearn that stuff. We'd have to go and, you know, like we hate low level programming languages like C. I don't want to be allocating memory, that kind right. of stuff. You know, it was it was going with it was playing with our strengths. It was going with where where the buzz was. You know, it just made a lot of sense. Definitely agree. And I mean, we don't mean to like preach too much, and and we're not as nearly as successful as a lot of other game developers out there. But oh, that's totally true. But I feel like there's a big difference. Um, between you know where we were two years ago and where we are now yeah in terms of just our happiness and our fulfillment with things that we're doing day to day yeah and we get a lot of people like emailing us and and asking on twitter and stuff is like hey you know we're trying to launch our indie startup do you have any advice and that kind of thing and i guess this is our long-winded 
response. So yep. now we'll have a place where we can point people and say, listen to us ramble for <laughs> 30 minutes. And <laughs> We're definitely not ch- trying to tell people, you know, how to be successful necessarily, but uh, we all have these people in our lives, like my brother and, you know, the people we've interacted with that want to break into the creative industry and they just, yep. they're not sure how to do it. And so I, I always want to help those people because... I was in that same spot. It's close to your heart, right? Yeah, exactly. You remember being there where you're like, oh man, I wish I could make games full time. And like, I always feel like if I can do something, other people can do it too. I mean, a lot of it's just about spending the time and, and making the effort. I, I really hate it when people say things like, oh, I can't do that because blah. Yeah. You know, and it's like, no, you can. You just have to figure out what to do. Like, there are do it probably in spare time. people like who, who aren't maybe as smart as you, who, who aren't as lucky as you, and they've been doing it, you know? Right. It's all about figuring out the process and, and just kind of like sticking to it. Definitely. So part of what this sponsorship with uh, by Pokey does for us is it uh, ensures the development of our next game. That's true. So we talked a little bit about Super Lava Sword, yep. uh, which we're now calling Lava Blade. Yeah, I think we've started to finalize on a title. So we, we actually had, you may have seen us blog about it, we actually finished a HTML5 portal game called Lava Sword a while ago. And uh, the thing with those HTML5 portal games is they really need to be very basic for performance reasons and also budget reasons. Like, you don't get a whole lot of money for those games. So if you spent a ton of time making it really, really good and really polished and excellent gameplay and all You're that... You're losing money. You are losing money. So it, it kind of has to hit a bar. And the bar that we aim for, we, we go and we play other portal games on, on these on these sites and we try to do something that's a little better than, than, than the medium. You know what I mean? Right. So that, that's where we hit. And... Um, so Super Lava Sword is kind of what we were talking about with like, we love the concept, we just wanted to spend more time on it, but we, like we said, we couldn't afford to spend it on the Portal game. So rather than trying to have like this kind of heavy-handed like Super Lava Sword, like all these syllables, then having this like direct relationship, be a all-out sequel at that point, right? Instead, we're going with Lava Blade, which I think kind of rolls off the tongue and is, is right. quite simpler and it's not really a sequel. It's kind of a, a similar kind of game, maybe, but yeah. it's much bigger and much more involved, and, and the mechanics are slightly different. So I feel like it's more of like it's a spiritual successor. Yeah, I love that term. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why. It just it just works really well. Yeah, I always think about it like you know Soul Edge and Soul yeah, Calibur, yeah. Shining in the Darkness, Shining Force. Yeah, yeah, it's spirit- Yeah, because it's not a sequel. Because like you expect a sequel to at least be in the same genre of game. Right. So that's really exciting for us um, because. We went full-time independent in February, and we started working on portal games, and our time has always been kind of split, and so we're working on portal games, we're working on, we've been working on Lunchbug probably since February or March, right? Mm, April, May, June. Okay. Well, it's been a while, and we've never really fully been working on Lunchbug. It's always been kind of like, I'll be working on it a lot, and then you work on it a lot, and then in the meantime, one or the other of us is working on other games just to kind of like keep us afloat. And, and that kind of stuff. Um, but with this Pokey sponsorship, we're going to be able to dedicate almost all of our time. Bas- but, so basically all of our time is going to be dedicated to like getting Lunchbug out the door, you know, right. finalizing that, hopefully monetizing it somehow. And then Lava Blade is going to be our core focus. So we're going to have three months on that. And it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be much more in the vein of Onslaught uh, in terms of gameplay. Yeah. Um, not that it's exactly like Onslaught, but it's more of kind of a older school combat medieval fantasy kind of game kind of like so onslaught is a game about move and attack and lava blade is going to be a game about moving and attacking only it's going to be instead of moving in a like a overhead 2d world it's going to be moving 
between three platforms, like jumping or dropping down right. from the platform. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting hybrid of like a platformer and then like an auto run game like Cannibalt, kind of a, a shoot things game like Onslaught Arena. Yeah. So. But we've got a, so you actually did a prototype. You've been working on it for like the last month or so. Yeah, it's actually coming along um, pretty nicely. So, I mean, the, all the basic mechanics are there. And so I've started building out the game objects, you know. Um, one of the, the most fun things I'm working on right now is I'm adding uh, these spring pads and these boosters. Those are cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so I set up the level generator to basically create these long strings of coins and then always plop a booster right in front of them. Yeah. And so you just play this game, jumping on the platforms, and you hit a booster and you just fly through. Yeah. yeah. You fly through this ring of coins or whatever, and it's it feels really great. So, so that's so. why I'm so excited about Lava Blade is because it's really going to be our first full-time studio game because like Lunchbug, it, it was kind of ad hoc you know like it, it has been a game that we've put like most of our resources into and that we spent a lot of time on that we're, we're, we're really proud of it and we want it to stand tall and all that and we feel like the quality is there but it, it's it has not been a game that we've been able to design and and like uh, scope out and schedule all this time for you know and Lava Blade is going to be our full, our first game where we get to do that. Like we spent a lot of time before we've written a single line of code. We designed the whole thing. We did like flowcharts and we did um, paper prototypes and all that stuff. You know, it definitely feels like we're taking a much more professional approach to this game. Yeah, as opposed to the other ones. The other ones felt a little ad hoc. They're just like tossed together. Yeah. Although Lunchbug is actually turning out amazingly well, I think. For, for having no process whatsoever. That's true. Well, besides us, like, here's a game prototype. Let's build it. A lot of that came from our listener feedback. Like, we actually gave a link to Lunchbug on a, cu- a couple of episodes ago, and we got, a, a like, a healthy amount of emails from mm-hmm. listeners. Thank you very much for that. And we've actually made a lot of changes based on that feedback. We did. We actually, because of listener feedback, we added um, the concept of levels. So, like, there's 20 levels in the game that you can play through, and that unlocks the endless mode. Whereas previously, you were just dumped into endless mode, and we didn't really have a very good game loop. It was pretty much just leaning really heavily on the game mechanics. Right. So... So that'll that'll come out pretty soon, hopefully. Um, we're basically, you know, uh, waiting to launch it. Um, it's in a launchable state right now, but we're trying to figure out what the best way to launch it is. Um, should yep. we, where should we put it? Um, can we get exclusive deals for it somewhere? Yep. Um, and so everybody wants us to integrate with their API, and we're right. trying. Like, there's only so many hours in the day, so we're trying to figure out like who to prioritize, where to focus our time, and then at the same time, we can't spend that much time on Lunchbug because we have to get back to Lava Blade. Right. Yeah, so we're busy as... Don't say it. Busy as bees. PG cast, Jeff. <laughs> but anyways, that'll be coming out very soon, hopefully. Um, maybe within the next couple of weeks. Who knows? Hopefully. Yeah. You were just looking at uh, integrating Facebook credits yesterday. I was, yeah. Um, I was kind of hoping that Facebook credits can be used outside Facebook, but it looks like you have to sign up for that. Yeah, I don't think they're quite ready. It's got to be part of Facebook right now. Meh. Meh, whatever. So, as promised, um, we're going to give out the coupon codes for um, the HTML5 game dev course on Udemy. Yep. Um, and so, it's f- for the first 10 people that use this coupon code, uh, you will get the class for $19 as opposed to the regular price. Um, it expires July 31st. Quite a ways off. Yep. So, you have some time. Uh, but the coupon code is just listen to Lostcast, all capital letters, no spaces. Nice. So go check that out. Um, let us know if you like the course. It's using Lime.js, right? I believe so, yeah. So um, Pablo, who's the guy that, that runs the course, um, was telling me that he really likes Lime.js. Hmm. 
Um, I don't personally have any experience with it. I have not checked that one out. Um, but I'm sure the techniques are transferable to almost any game engine that's written against Canvas. That's probably true. So go check that out. Anyways, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time. That was an impotent start. <laughs>